Hi, and welcome to Talking With Cancer. I'm Katie, and I'm here to give you an honest, real, and even funny outlook on living with cancer. There is no one way to do cancer, and I've decided to share my story to help and inspire others, as well as raise awareness. At age 43, I was diagnosed with a rare type of thyroid cancer known as hobnail in February 2022, having never had any health issues previously. I was fit and well and took pretty good care of myself. But despite that, I got a diagnosis and I am on a long-term treatment plan. On this podcast, I will be sharing my progress regularly. And I often speak to amazing guests who've been impacted by cancer in some way. I really hope you enjoy listening. And if you do, then please rate, review, follow and recommend the pod. Have you done that? Have you done what I asked? Have you gone to your preferred podcast platform and rated, reviewed and followed the podcast? Great. Thank you so much for doing that. Hello and welcome to episode two of Talking With Cancer. I speak to a brilliant guest this week, Dr. Anisha Patel. She's written a book called Everything You'd Hoped You'd Never Need to Know About Bowel Cancer, A Doctor's Very Personal Guide to Getting Through the Shit and Beyond. She herself was diagnosed with stage three bowel cancer in 2018 and she was a practicing doctor at the time. Her husband actually specialized in screening bowel cancer. And she'd had symptoms for about nine months, but she justified those symptoms. She put them down to the pregnancies that she'd had had affected her bowels, her hormones, she believed was affecting her bowels during her menstrual cycle. So, you know, even though she noticed things weren't quite right, It wasn't until about nine months, I think she'd been discussing actually with her husband and she finally kind of got him to look at her symptoms as well. And they both said, right, this feels a bit more serious. So I think in a lot of ways, what struck me about her journey is that because of her knowledge and information as a doctor and in the medical world, potentially it was like a more scary experience to go through because she knew so much. And I think when you know so much, you know what can go wrong as well. She's really honest in our chat about all the different emotions that were triggered throughout her treatment. And she suffered with anxiety and panic attacks. And she talks about how she dealt with that. But basically, I think her whole approach, and she's got a brilliant social handle as well, it's at Doctors Get Cancer Too. And what she is doing is combining her personal experience with information. And I think it's a really brilliant way to educate and inform and raise awareness, which is a big part of her mission, really. And she seems to be doing that very successfully. So, yeah, I had a really lovely chat with Anisha and I'm going to play the interview for you now. Dr. Anisha Patel really lovely to have you here today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for inviting me, Katie. It's great to be here. I know you've had a very busy day. I saw you went running at 7.30 this morning. (laughs) I've got to pack it in somehow. Running, kids, work, podcast, repeat. (laughs) 
<laughs> Are you doing a lot of publicity at the moment for your book? Yeah, it's been great. The interest, because it is Bowel Cancer Awareness Month. It's just brilliant. Like people actually want to talk about it. And that's great that you can go on TV and be on radios and podcasts and talk about these things. And, you know, I'm sure we've got a lot of this down to Dame Deborah James to thank for uh, giving us this platform to be able to do that. Definitely. But I know from your side, you might feel like a bit of a broken record repeating your story again and again. I'm going to try not to ask you all the kind of typical questions. And I wanted to start really with a bit of context as to kind of where you were in your life, like before your diagnosis in 2018 of bowel cancer. What was life like before then? Where were you heading? How did you see things playing out? Yeah, so I basically kind of got my life back. I had two children under two, not out of choice, both my pregnancies. You know, the first one, it took me three years to have my baby, and the second one was a complete surprise. So there were five and six, both just starting school, starting to get my own life back, get my own social life, fitness, um, and career back on track. And I actually became a GP partner not long before I was diagnosed. So... I was definitely on a sort of career pathway. We were really enjoying life. Life had got easier, as I say, because the children were older. We were traveling, doing lots of things with exercise. And it was just brilliant. I was happy. You know, we all talk about how unexpected a cancer diagnosis is. But I think it's it kind of wakes you up in the sense that, like, you can think you are heading in one direction with your life, can't you? you yeah. You think that, right, this is the way it's going to go. For me, I was planning to have children I was going through IVF I was like on that journey to start a family and then bush like completely unexpected and then you're suddenly thrown onto a completely different path yeah absolutely I thought I was really happy but actually when you throw cancer into the mix when you come out the other side happiness is different like the value of happiness and what you value as being happy is completely completely different so I was happy being on a treadmill, you know, going through the pathways and, you know, you do your job and then you might get married or have that choice. And then we had, you know, children. And actually this threw a complete grenade in it all. This wasn't what I was expecting in my late 30s. Wasn't on my prep sheet. Obviously, I say to my husband even now, you know, all the opportunity and things I've had in terms of experiences and opportunities... I would still give it all back in a way not to have cancer. However, that's not going to happen. So I'm just trying to embrace actually the opportunities and the experiences and everything that life after cancer has to give. And it's not easy. Like some days are totally awful. It's really hard. And I cry and I feel down and I think, why me? And I remind myself that there are far more people in worse off situations, but it's okay to feel rubbish you know, you shouldn't feel guilty about it. But I think that, you know, the new perspective that it gives you and challenges you to think, what are my values in life? Where do I want to be? What does actually make me happy? I think it really does open up those conversations. And what's really interesting is you look at friends and family talk around you and you listen in almost with a different headset because you think about what they're worrying about and why they're not happy at the moment. But actually, you know, health is wealth and all that. And there are so many smaller things in life that just make me happy now. And I'm really glad in some ways I've got that opportunity to appreciate that. I think when you've 
felt unwell with cancer, whether that's the treatment, the side effects of the treatment, going through surgery, whatever it is, you just want to feel well. Yeah. And then when you do feel well, even if it's for sort of incremental moments, you're just so grateful, aren't you, that you can go running at 7.30 in the morning, for example. Those are the things that you just value. You're feeling good in your body. Absolutely. And there are days, because I do get people saying that to me, oh, you know, you're really lucky you can do this, you can do that. How do you manage your bowel problems? Oh, you've got sciatica. How do you run? There are days I can't run. So what you see is very one-dimensional. And actually, there are days I can't run or my bowels are really bad or, you know, I have to adapt whatever form of movement I can to the physicality of what my body can actually do that day. And that's what I talk to my patients about as well. It's like I don't expect runners, even if it means just walking around the block an extra time or doing some hand weights in a chair or especially after any chronic illness, I think, you know, it's adjusting your sales to what you can do. And sometimes I do feel sad because I can't go on bike rides with my friends because I can't sit on a bike anymore. You know, never say never, I might do in the future, but you know, that's just how it is right now. There's a lot of grieving of kind of your old body, isn't there? And what you used to be able to do. Uh, Yeah, definitely. I grieved a lot for my life before cancer and how active my life is. And I'm absolutely chuffed to bits that I can do so much of it and extremely grateful um but I do think sometimes you can see people around you sometimes take for granted that actually their body moves and is pain-free and actually they're really fortunate so yeah I absolutely agree with that you talked really openly and honestly about the symptoms and I think it was a period of about nine months from when you kind of were a bit concerned with some of your symptoms to when you got diagnosed and I think it's really important to share that stuff. I personally feel a lot of shame around how long I had symptoms for and did nothing about them but it seems very common. What I often wonder is like if we know the statistics that one in two get cancer diagnosis in their lifetime. Why is it always like the bottom of the kind of pile of possibilities that it could be a cancer diagnosis when we, not just as individuals, but in the medical world as well, and you've obviously got both perspectives. Why do you think that is when there is so much awareness? I think there's lots of reasons why. I think there will be an age-related reason because if you're young, you think, well, actually, older people get cancer and that's not true at all. There'll be a cultural and ethnic reasons and the fact that there is shame and taboo and embarrassment and stigma behind some of these cancers. And you can be really ousted from your community and not have the support that you need. So some people, because it's not talked about with their communities, wouldn't even know that this could happen. There is that sort of, sometimes we know that there is a lack of education with certain cancers. We know, for example, with bowel cancers, up to a third of people didn't know the symptoms of bowel cancer, or at least one of them. So I think it's multifactorial. And actually, we live these busy, modern Western lives where we are, and actually, sometimes health isn't put up there. I see that a lot in my practice, that, you know, health isn't actually high up on the agenda because you've got to keep going on that treadmill every day. And so particularly women, you know, sometimes don't put their health first and foremost, and particularly men, 
don't often come and see to the GP because they think, oh, I don't need to go. I've just got to carry on. And the other thing I talk about is often we can talk ourselves into a plausible explanation of symptoms. So I think for myself, there was more plausible explanations for my symptoms than cancer at the time. And actually, you know, I had no risk factors for cancer. There's no family history. There's no nothing. You know, I didn't fit the bill. And although I know and my husband knows that anyone can get cancer, I think there was just multiple reasons why I let things go on. And also my symptoms were intermittent. So in the beginning, it wasn't every day. It wasn't always a problem. You know, the constipation symptoms that I had initially really were mainly a period but before my period, so I thought at that point it was hormonal. And my hormones are changing as I'm older. So there was always something else. And it was only when things were sort of really quite dramatically different. And, you know, I was like, no, this is not just piles. And I thought it might be something like inflammatory bowel disease, which, again, seemed probably a more plausible explanation in my age group. That, you know, obviously I did seek help. Did you feel shame about that period that you kind of... Well, I mean, you've said there were plausible explanations for it. I ask the question about shame because I definitely struggle with that, with kind of if I'd have gone earlier, it would be a different prognosis. It's quite a hard thing to live with and accept. Yeah, it is. And I think because I do share my story so openly, like even recently, I've had some really negative comments about it and, you know, Things suggesting that, well, if I don't know what I'm doing, then how do I adopt and all these things? Oh, but that, no. that's not the point of why I was sharing. You know, my patients, I know what, if I had come with my symptoms objectively, I would have done the necessary test and referred. And it's just interesting how when it happened to yourself, I had a subjective, different opinion or assessment of myself, which is why you never treat yourselves or your loved ones or your relatives, because you cannot be objective. So I don't feel shame because in my medical head, I know that the cancer I had was relatively, you know, from the time it's gone from a polyp to a cancer, it's very slow growing. And had I been diagnosed three months earlier, I'm not sure, you know, if that would have made a difference or not. I'll never know. I try not to live in the past. I can't change what happened. The only way I can go forward now is with this. And I would have always had cancer because this polyp had been growing for a long time. We are pretty sure of it. And I didn't have symptoms. And it's only in the later stages where I'm getting symptoms. And that's one of the problems with bowel cancer is that symptoms often show up later in the disease, which is why we've got the bowel cancer screening programme, which detects cancers early because there's no symptoms at those earlier stages. Right. So with the other perspective, with the other hat on, why, going back to my original question, why do you think that a cancer diagnosis is so sort of low down on the agenda when people show symptoms? From the medical perspective, not just from the patient perspective, why do you think often a doctor might disregard whether cancer could potentially be the diagnosis? So when people say, oh, my doctor didn't, you know listen to me they disregarded it okay so one of the main things I see as part of my job is when people come in the door you've got to rule out the scariest nastiest things first such as a cancer and then work backwards from there so we never diagnose someone with IBS when they walk through the door we have to do all the tests including excluding bowel cancer before we make that diagnosis 
there has been, and I've seen this, which is, you know, obviously difficult being in the profession, a lot of talk about people being disregarded, having been taken seriously by their doctor, being told they're too young, they don't fit, you know, the bill of having that cancer. And the too young thing is one that really needs to be quashed and one that I really strive to try and depart that information with healthcare professionals by sharing my own story with them, by saying no one's too young, too brown, too white, too, you know, female, male, tall, thin. It doesn't matter. No one is too anything because it really doesn't discriminate. And that is what we need to get through from the health professional side of things. And actually what I would say to people is if they feel that they're not being listened to or disregarded is persist, write a diary of your symptoms, go to charities, so Bowel Cancer UK, for example, have a bowel cancer symptom diary that you can download, fill out the diary, take it with them, because it's quite hard then to actually go, oh, actually, this could be. If that GP is not responding, go and speak to another GP. If you're failing to get response from that GP or that practice, you know, I've been known to say, well, change practice then, you know. Sometimes we have to advocate for ourselves. I wish it wasn't like that but sometimes we do. And if you have had the necessary tests and things, you know, then, then obviously you can be reassured. But if symptoms persist or you think something's wrong again, it's okay to go back. Mm, I think the diary thing is a really good idea. That's really good advice. You know, whatever your symptoms are, because then you can kind of, it's easy to forget yourself as well, isn't it? I don't know if that was something that you found as well in the lead up to a diagnosis, kind of once you're feeling all right one day, you think, oh, well, maybe, you know, it was just like a day and today. It's kind of, it's a good way to track it. I think that's really smart. Because actually sometimes in a consultation, it can be hard to navigate when patients are thinking about, oh, when was my last period? Oh, when did I last have a, that symptom? Actually, if you've got it in black and white, it's really obvious that actually you may have been having headaches every day for the last two weeks. Well, that's not normal. Whereas if you're sitting there going, oh, did I have a headache on when? Mm, I don't know. So, yeah, I would really advocate it. But I like it when patients write stuff down for me and bring it with them because it's just, obviously, we don't want pages and pages. But if it's like short style, you know, Monday to the Sunday, that's what I had. Brilliant. OK, so don't bring a whole journal, but, you know, a couple of pages. <laughs> One of the things, you know, is obviously like a really interesting talking point in research about cancer, which you've already touched on, is how young people are. More and more young people are getting diagnosed. We don't yet know why that is. But what I'm interested to understand is, like, how do we research into why that might be? Do you know? They are already researching it. And I've spoken to people at various events that I've been to who are looking at ways to detect cancer early individuals. And there's some rather big studies going on as we speak, looking into that. They think it might be multifactorial. You know, they're trying to attribute a lot of it to a Western lifestyle. Well, you know, a lot of the people I know from Western areas, as it were, had no risk factors. We're not big meat eaters. We're not drinking loads of alcohol. We're not smoking. We're not overweight. We're not eating loads of processed meat. There is definitely something else going on here. And the microbiome, I think, has probably got a large portion to play in this. As well as low-fibre diets, we know that over half of cases preventable are due to a low-fibre diet. I mean, it's such an undersold and underrated nutrient, but, yeah, it's so important for so many reasons, and not just the prevention of bowel cancer, but, you know, heart disease, stroke, cholesterol, so much more. So I think 
there's lots of things going on. Someone talked about, you know, potential early antibiotic use in childhood, whether that upsets your microbiome. There is loads and loads going on, and they are researching it. And it will be, the problem is, is obviously, if you're studying people from childhood and seeing who progresses, it's a lengthy piece of work. But the work needs to be done because the increase is exponential. There was, it's been in the press over the last few years, certainly since I've been diagnosed. And interestingly, it's an increase of rectal cancer, particularly in females as well, which is what I had. Interesting. I wanted to ask you as well about, because you've been so open and honest in your book and in sharing your story. And one of the things you talked about was the anxiety and the panic attacks. And, you know, I think that that is a huge part of going through cancer diagnosis and treatment. And, you know, it's massive. How did that affect your life? And what did you sort of do to treat it? It really crept up on me. That's what was scary. So when I was diagnosed, I was very pragmatic. I was obviously upset. I almost went into that slight detachment mode, almost doctoring myself, almost like it wasn't me. And I think I went through the whole of my treatment really detached from my situation, almost like it wasn't happening to me. But although I could practically manage in the day because I had to, because I wanted to, because of the children, because of my family, it meant that everything came out at night. And that soon saw, you know, full-blown full, full blown insomnia kick in, the panic attacks that always happened at night when I was trying to fall asleep, that anxiousness, that feeling on edge. I'd never had mental health difficulties before. Like everyone feels, you know, a bit of anxiousness or gets low mood from time to time, but not like this and not prolonged. And with the drugs and with the treatment and with the surgery and with pain, it, of course, affects your mood. And... You know, there were times where I probably was depressed. The panic attacks would rear every time there was something happening. So a new chemo cycle, surgery, scan time. And so what I decided to do was with the help of sort of the Fountain Centre, which is basically a holistic cancer centre attached to my my unit, they suggested I have hypnotherapy, and this was before treatment started, before I had surgery. So never tried hypnotherapy. It was great. They even came to the ward after my surgery, and it was brilliant. It really did take the edge off. And then I went on to counselling soon after my second op. So I probably started counselling about seven weeks, or no, 45 weeks after my first diagnosis, partly because I was saying, I'm fine, I don't need it, I don't need it, I'm fine. But I knew I needed an outlet by that point because I think everything had sunk in, the enormity of going through two operations back to back pretty much and starting chemo. So I had counselling for at least 18 months. And the way I dealt with my panic and anxiety was through breathing exercises. I did keep trying to exercise when I could, but it was very limited. Obviously, I was bed bound pretty much for five days of each cycle. And then I'd sort of slowly start maybe walking and then slowly do a bit of weights. And so use exercise, breathing techniques. I did try some mindfulness and sort of headspace things, but I found it really difficult because the cancer noise was really loud. And what was really interesting is obviously I sit here and tell patients all the time, oh, use calm, use headspace. But actually... When you try and use it yourself sometimes, it's not that easy. And actually, different people respond to different types of mindfulness. And that's what I realised for myself. I needed more of an active mindfulness. So I learned techniques for myself, such as, you know, cooking with music on, for example, or things where I was very mindful. I could smell things, I could touch things, I could look at things, I could be in the moment. But I found it really hard to engage in that sort of let's sit down and listen to some headspace or calm 
The other thing I did do as well, eventually, once I finished treatment, was I reached a point where when I returned to work, the anxiety was real. And actually, it was worse in some ways because I was trying to manage integrating myself into this new normal post-cancer, which I was really struggling with. I was struggling with the symptoms post-cancer, with my bowel, with my back, with my nerve pains. And I was struggling with how to be a mum, how to be a wife, how to be a doctor again. And everything sort of came at once. And so in the end, when I did get back to work, it was all quite triggering. And we had a diagnosis of PTSD made. And I went on to have trauma-based cognitive behavioural therapy after that. They did try CBT without the trauma bit. It didn't help. I'd been through the process. I knew techniques to use, but I needed something that was more trauma-based and to kind of relive the bits that, you know, kept popping up in my head. I'm always struck by how difficult it must be to come through the other side. Because I think everyone's so celebratory. Yay, you've done it. But actually then, you know, you're reflecting back on what you've been through. And it's like, how do you process all of that? You know, it's huge. And like you say, trying to integrate your life and find a new normal, your identities change, your experiences change, what your body's been through, you know, it's life-changing. So I always ask people who've kind of come through the other side, like that, to me, must be like one of the hardest things, really, reintegrating. It is, and it's living with the uncertainty. And it's the fact that people, unless you've trodden the path, don't sometimes quite understand what your problem is. You know, you've had your cancer treatment. Come on, crack on, that's it. I hadn't appreciated how difficult it would be. I was worried, obviously, about the future. I felt like I couldn't plan. I was, you know, very tentative and felt, you know, you were treading on ice. But my husband used to describe me as fragile. And that's exactly what I was. You know, the slightest thing would just tip me over, whether that be within friendships or family or situations or work or, you know, I just had no resilience. (laughs) Yet I'd probably been the most resilient I'd ever been to get through treatment. It was like, you know, cup was completely empty. And your self-esteem and your self-confidence, everything, it just goes. And although everyone can say, oh, but you look the same and you didn't lose your hair and you this and that, there are bits of you that have gone that you notice every single day, multiple times a day. There are things that are different in your body and you've got different glasses now and it isn't the same. Are you glad that you made that choice very early on to be open and share and informative about what you were going through? Because I think I relate to that. You know, I've done a podcast and when I'm not in a good space, I can't, I can't sit down and, you know, get in the microphone and, and I kind of, I have to be kind to myself about it. I have to say like, don't put the pressure on. Remember, like, this is important that I'm okay while I'm doing this and I'm doing this for the right reasons. It's great to share your story and it's great to help other people. But are you glad that that was the choice that you made? Has it been difficult at times? I'm a hundred percent glad I've made the decision Because partly selfishly, in some ways, this has been really cathartic to me. And that's what I should have said in terms of managing my symptoms. This has been my own therapy. I wasn't a writer. I wasn't anything before this. But I decided to journal my way through it and cathartically. And on some of the dark days, I would write some dark things. And I've shared a couple of bits of that in the book. Because I don't want people to be triggered all the time as well. But just to show the reality that it's not this 
running woman who goes back to work and doing everything. You know, I had really, really dark times. And then what I do is I release it on my social media. And that was one step of the catharsis, writing. The next was releasing on social media. The next was sort of processing it with everyone, either relating to it or giving their, you know, support. And then I'd go back and read it to my counsellor where I'd just cry it all out. And then we moved on to the next bit. And that was how I dealt with each stage of getting through treatment. And also afterwards, and even now, still, I write cathartically on my social media. I think a couple of weeks ago, I wrote about how the fact I had a really heavy case today. I went to see a lady at home that was dying, who was a healthcare professional of cancer, and she was telling me how hard it was to be a healthcare professional. She was actually a hospice nurse, and then now to be in this situation. And I cried after leaving that home visit. I then had that same day, you know, two new diagnoses of cancer, two people I needed to refer for suspected cancer. And I went home and I was broken. It was such a triggering day and I hadn't had it for so long because usually, you know, most days, touch wood, I'm four and a half years away from cancer now and I'm okay. But I went home that night and I wrote such a cathartic post totally from the heart and I hadn't written for a long time. Like My book had been finished for a while and I hadn't just had that burning desire. So sharing also helps me, but it helps other people. And the messages that I get that I'm helping other people also drive me to continue sharing. And the negative messages you get, well, you just have to, you know, let it go. Yeah, that's shocking that you get that. It's so upsetting, but it is, um, it's kind of part of the the beast, isn't it? I think it's true. I totally relate. It's really cathartic and it's like, great. It's great that it's helping others and it's helping me. And do you find it cathartic when you read back as well? On what yes, you've I wrote the book. I cried a lot rewriting the book and I didn't know at times whether this was more damaging. And I'll be, it's the first time I've really said that really. I just, I didn't know whether this was actually going to affect my mental health because I spent seven months, most days, rereading my story, writing about my story, writing about other or looking at other people's stories who've been through situations. And I actually think in the long term, this is catharsis in itself. This was the plan B of everything. And, you know, I'm nearly at that part. But there are days like you where I don't want to do this and I come off social media for a bit and I don't want to talk cancer because my day job involves cancer plus my other job where I work with charities and do all this other work is cancer it's heavy it's a lot and yeah it's a lot and we do need to take that time out and self-care because you sometimes forget what you're talking about this is you you know all the time that you're sort of reliving that and cancer awareness months can become really heavy so for example now's about cancer awareness month I know by the end of this month not just because of the book but every cancer awareness month that I've been involved in I'm exhausted because mm. emotional exhausting as well. And um, we sometimes forget that. And there are people now on social media who find it all really triggering and hard. And that, I can see how that happens. You know, yeah. it flooded. I talked on a previous series to Carly Musa, who is, a, I think you know her, and talked about, you know, exactly kind of the pros and cons of like immersing in that community in whichever way it is and how you've just got to be smart about when it's not good for you, you know, really consider yourself because it it is a lot. And I think there is that pressure as well once you have a platform to kind of respond to people, I mean, especially in your job. Yeah, it's important to kind of consider that like, you're a human being as well, right? I mean, I think the book 
everything you hoped you'd never need to know about bowel cancer, which is great. It's so, I think what you do really well, Anisha, is actually you combine your like informative and personal. You kind of like marry those two things brilliantly because there's so much like great, important information and it's really educational. But at the same time, like you're coming from someone with obviously the experience and you share that and you share the feelings that you had. How did it come about then, this book? Do you know what's really weird was a few people had said to me when I started writing cathartically and when I started sort of getting together some medical information to maybe help others how I'd manage symptoms. People are like, you should write a book, you know, some of the bowel cancer community. And I had, you know, and I said, oh, I'd love to, and that'd be great, but no, I can't. And I wasn't in the place to, and that was a few years back. But in the last year, I'd actually got a GP mentor who has helped me back to work post-cancer, which has been brilliant. And I've been sharing the other work I've been doing. And she always says to me, Anisha, you do light up when you talk about all your other work and awareness work. And I spoke back to her about, I'd love to write a book because I think, I think I've got some real gems and nuggets here of what I've learned, but also through my doctor lens as well. And she said, yeah, great. Why don't you write a few chapters and then, you know, inquire with some of the people you know how you'd go about, you know, write, you know, approaching publishing houses. And, of course, life got busy. I wrote the contents and never wrote anything more. And literally two months later after that meeting, I had an email come through on my work email um, looking for me um, from the publishing house, uh, Hachete and Sheldon Press is the medical branch there. And they basically asked me if I'd write a book. And they initially asked me to book a, write a book about like almost like an A to Z of bowel cancer, which is great and helpful. But I actually said to them, I can write this, but actually what you need is you need a book that actually tells you what happens through it and after it, because no one tells you that. No leaflet, no pamphlet, no nothing that you give us could ever share some of the things that I and other people have experienced. And that's why it was also so important to bring on other people in this book, which I have, mm. who have experienced things that I haven't. You know, people who've been diagnosed with the screening programme, I just wanted people to know and relate to them in whatever capacity. And so that's really how the baby was born, sort of May 2022. And by Christmas, I'd written... 130,000 words and it was only meant to be 70. Oh, wow. You're an editor's dream, though. They'd rather have more than less, right? Wow. So they cut it down to 110 and it probably could have been two books. But to be honest, I just wanted someone to have it all there. And it is a thick book and I do think you get a lot of information in one. But I think it's really important that someone has the whole thing, the whole picture. That's how it was born. And we wanted it to obviously come out now where people are talking about cancer. And that's great because we can have these conversations then. So that's really how it, yeah. Congratulations. It's really good and it deserves to do really well. I think it's really important something like this is available to people. You know, I think it should be available for all cancers. You know, there are so many things specific to other people's cancers. You know, I've seen plenty of breast cancer books out there. Thyroid. No one talks about thyroid cancer. It's not sexy at all, but it's, you know... You know, I think there's a place here to write a book for all of these cancers as a companion because you really need something else or someone that gets it for you to feel or validate what you're feeling because sometimes I used to think to myself why am I feeling like this but actually it was normal and I just gave myself a hard time for no reason really because 
being in that moment, I didn't get it. I can sit back now and reflect and go, oh gosh, yeah, complete mess. What was I doing? But there's so much going on at the time. In so terms much. Of the drugs, the tiredness, the pain, everything. Yeah, and going back to the very beginning of our chat, like the way you thought your life would play out, you know, is a lot. And I think it's it's brilliant to share your story, but with so, like your social handle, it's so clever, doctors get cancer too, you know, because like the medical professionals are people, you are people. And the fact that you can empathise now on a whole different level must just make you, I mean, your patients are so lucky to have you basically. (laughs) (laughs) you know, their eyes as well, and even mental health and, and actually the wider impact of a diagnosis. So we're lucky to have personal lists. So if someone in the family's got cancer, you will see the repercussions on everyone else actually having to live through it as well. And actually understand that, you know, I saw my children, I saw my husband, I saw what it did to them some days. And, you know, it is, it's a tsunami for everyone. It is. It's a huge ripple effect. It's been so lovely chatting to you, Anisha. Thank you for taking the time. I hope you've got something nice and relaxing that you're doing this evening. I'm definitely going to plan to put my feet up this evening. (laughs) Good, good. Yeah, it's been lovely chatting to you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Right, take care. So listen, I can't really, I guess, emphasise enough, like... To really get yourself checked if something doesn't look or feel right. I think even if you feel like you're making a fuss or you're going back to the doctor with the same stuff, it's really important. You know, my outlook would be different if I'd have gone earlier and got checked. And never in a million years did I think that a cough was a symptom of thyroid cancer. By the time I got the cough the lymph nodes, which is where a lot of the cancer has spread to, were, you know, enlarged and pushing against my windpipe. I also had a lump on the backside, left side of my neck, and it was pretty significant and it grew within about a five-week period. So by the time I went and got tests done, you know, I was pretty far down the line. And um, all I'm saying is, you know, I do have feelings of regret, as I said to Anisha, and some feelings of shame because I feel like a bit of an idiot. I try to be compassionate to myself and not beat myself up. There's nothing I can do now and there's no point sort of getting upset with myself about it. Here is where I am. But what I can do is say to other people and, again, use this platform to say, just go to the doctor, just, you know, get yourself checked. And also there is a bit of a myth, I think, that like if we have bloods done and all our bloods are fine, then everything is fine. And that's not true. Like my cancer wouldn't have ever shown up in blood tests. So, you know, the best thing to do is to take a look and see what's going on. So, yeah, that's just something I can't really emphasise enough, given my own experience and my own journey. But I hope you will check out this book by Dr. Anisha Patel, Everything You Hoped You'd Never Need to Know About Bowel Cancer, because it's really informative. There's so much in there about right from symptoms through to post-treatment and everything in between. So I really recommend it. And I really thank Anisha for coming on this week. It was great to chat to her. And thank you guys for joining and listening. And I'll see you next week. Bye.
Bye.